In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. Our text today begins with Yahweh instructing Moses on just who he has chosen to construct the tabernacle. It then moves on to giving more instructions regarding the Sabbath, a Sabbath day of rest established by God during creation. He now reinforces that need to rest in him to his people. Good morning. Today is Thursday, December 22nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures with God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today, let's thank our underwriter. Let's thank God for our underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their great translating and publishing work for the kingdom at lhfmissions.org. This morning, we have a great guest. Please join me in welcoming to help us examine Exodus 31, the Reverend Nathaniel Brown. He's the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Correll, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran Church in Bellingham, Minnesota, and Trinity Lutheran Church in Odessa, Minnesota. Pastor Brown, looks like you got your hands full there at those three congregations. Good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning and thank you for having me. And I am definitely busy being a tri-parish pastor, but it is absolutely a joy to serve these people and to preach to them and to give them God's word as well. I can imagine. Tell us a little bit about what that's like and what God is doing through you and and these three uh, congregations. Yeah, so I'm in western Minnesota, and so we are in the season of Advent, and we are about to be celebrating the birth of our Lord, and it is a joy to have three congregations. They get along spectacularly. They go to every uh, Advent service of the other congregations. And so what we do is we rotate the midweeks and we have everyone go to one congregation instead of doing three congregations for midweek services. And I definitely thank the Tri-Parish for that because that means that there is a little bit less work for me to do on a midweek. But everyone gets along spectacularly. It's a true blessing. And it definitely reminds me of the psalm that says, blessed are, or how blessed are the brothers when they dwell in unity. And I get to see that each and every week. The three congregations uh, rotate their worship times every Sunday. So every six months, they actually have a new church time. One congregation worships on Saturday. The other two worship Sunday morning. And so it does give a little bit of a variety for them. But it's something that not many Lutheran congregations would have happen where pastor says, hey, you're going to change your worship time every six months and you're actually going to like it. And the three congregations here absolutely do. And it's a blessing to serve them. So I have seen uh, very good examples of, of dual and tripart parishes, and I've seen some that just don't mesh well. And it's not always, you know, from a sinful part of people. Sometimes it's just what people are used to and the difficulty it is to change. But it sounds like you got not only a, a complicated situation in your hand, but God has really blessed you with some symbiosis and people are working together. And that's, and that's great to see. 
Yeah, it is absolutely wonderful to see. And I have heard stories of the dual or tri-point parishes that don't get along well. And as you said, it's not usually sinful, but if both congregations or all three congregations were used to having their own pastor, going down to one with multiple parishes is definitely hard. But my three are absolutely an example and a shining light in Western Minnesota. That's wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we have uh, in our section today, it's going to lead up to talking about the Sabbath. But before we get to that, the first part of our chapter is about the people that God has in mind to construct all the things about the tabernacle that we've been talking about over the past few episodes. We've been speaking of its design and its furnishing, its altars, even the, the, the wear of the priest have been on our mind as we've gone through Exodus. But who's going to put all this together? Well, God has some ideas, obviously. He's going to set those ideas in motion through Moses, and that's going to be our topic. But before we dive into the text, brother, would you begin our time together in prayer? Absolutely. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have established order in your creation for the Sabbath, but we also give you thanks and praise that you have made the Old Testament church with the temple and the altar and the offerings of the priests and the garments that they wear as beautiful. And we ask that you would be with us today as we dive through your word and we go through talking about who is going to be making these altar furnishings and then talking about the Sabbath. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, before then we dive into the text, uh, maybe give us a little bit of background. You know, we, we have been talking a lot, but perhaps for those who haven't been keeping up, just give us a quick rundown of setting the stage for, for what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so in Exodus, we all know the story of the Exodus that happens early on in the book of Exodus. And God's people were in slavery, and then they walked across the dry ground of the Red Sea when Moses stretched out his hands. And then they went on to Sinai, and Mo or Moses went up the mountain of Sinai. God then said, hey, here are the things that I want you to tell my people. And he has been giving exactly what the order of the tabernacle, which prefigures the temple is, and all of these altar furnishings, and the mercy seat is being built, and all of these things are being built. And today we are actually going to be talking about who God has now placed to make these things, because Moses is definitely busy. We hear that Jethro, his father-in-law, says, you are being too busy even just being the leader of God's people. So God's going to have some lay people brought in to oversee the building of the tabernacle, uh, tabernacle excuse me, uh, some of the altar furnishings and also some of the other things of order that God has in mind for his people. Well, let's get into who he has set forth to help with this task uh, with our reading. So I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible, Exodus chapter 31, just the first half, verses 1 through 11. 
The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic design, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the tables and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded, they shall do. Indeed, all that he has commanded Moses has been quite a bit in such intricate detail as we've gone over. But beginning at the top, brother, you know, the Lord, he's called specific people to this task. And that's kind of interesting. Uh, begin to solve. Take us from here. Yeah, so it's really interesting that God has said there are going to be certain people that are going to be working all of the furnishings and do all of this. And the two names that are mentioned in the text are Bezalel and Aholiab. And one thing when we are diving into scripture, we should always remember that all of the scripture points us to Jesus. And so, yes, Bezael and Aholiab were actual people. They actually made the temple. But it is really interesting that God says in the most holy place of the temple and of the tabernacle, only the Levitical priests, the people who are from the tribe of Levi, could enter into this. But one thing that we notice in this text is Bezalel is of the tribe of Judah. He's not of the tribe of Levi. And that is really interesting when we look at Jesus and we say, oh, wait, Jesus, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is the New Testament temple, and he is also from the tribe of Judah. So we do get to see a little bit of this foreshadowing that Bezalel, even though he was a fantastic layperson, made the tabernacle, he also was of the tribe of Judah. So we do get to see that this tribe of Judah is going to be important to the temple. And for Oholiab, he was of the tribe of Dan. And Dan was the tribe that actually walked away from being God's people. And in Revelation, we actually hear that they are actually cut out of the whole people of God. So this person who should not have any business being inside of the temple comes in. And we do see a foreshadowing of how we as Gentiles should have no business worshiping Jesus, who, who grew up and died as a faithful Jew. And yet we as Gentiles who have no business being in with God's people are actually brought in. So we get to see a little bit of foreshadowing both with Bezalel and with Oholiab. That's an interesting observation. You know, Moses mentions 
specifically here, of course, God's the one mentioning it, but Moses records that uh, Bezalel is from the tribe of Judah. And he talked about only the priests being able to go into some of these places. And I, I think about this a little bit whenever I'm at a congregation and I'm at the altar. And, and once the altar is established in the pulpit and the font, and we have the, uh, the lectern and the chancel area and the sanctuaries all set up, and you think we've dedicated these pieces to God, right? They've been consecrated, so to speak, to, to the use of our worship of God. And then God comes to us through these man-made things, uh, but now they're holy. They're set apart. They're, they're established for a particular use. But then I've been behind altars or pulpits where you can kind of see the name of the person who inscribed it. Or, it's, or maybe they even have like a little plaque in there where they're like, you know, made by you know, Joe Schmo back in the 30s or back in the 1800s. And you think about, you know, when you're, a, when you're building an altar, and for those of you who have been involved with building churches or putting together sacred, uh, sacred furniture for the church, you think, wow, it's like it, it takes the ordinary. And then we, we consecrate it and now really treat it as holy because of how we're using it and have dedicated it to God. Even our holy vessels, right? Just a, just a regular cup when holding the blood of Christ becomes something that's sanctified and holy. God is a God who takes ordinary things and makes something extraordinary out of them. So when I'm thinking about these guys, yeah, I mean, it, it becomes this place where you have this fear of dying if you were to go in there and offer, say, <laughs> unauthorized fire, as happens later. Yet during the construction of it, not that there aren't rules, but it's like it's not yet designated for that purpose. And there's this little weird time between as they're building it and when it becomes holy. I just think about that sometimes. I don't know, maybe I'm rambling, but that's what I thought about when I thought of these guys who are, who are set apart to design, or not design rather, but to put together God's design for the tabernacle. Yeah, and it's absolutely wonderful to see and to know that Yes, God has designated ordinary things for uh, for holy actions. And we see this even as Lutherans, where it's not just water that makes somebody clean in God's eyes. It's water combined with the word. It's not just bread or wine. It's the bread and wine combined with the word of God made flesh, Jesus himself. And we see this even in Exodus as well, where these ordinary people, these ordinary things, the word that is going to be made for the structure and all of these things, as soon as the word of God comes and dwells in the tabernacle, it becomes holy. So we do get to see some really amazing things of God also comes to us in ordinary means. And in a couple short days, we will be celebrating the nativity of our Lord, where God actually takes our normal human flesh and joins himself to it. So we do get to see a bunch of this even today. But I also appreciate, and I'm sure you note, note too, is that in verse 3, he says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God with the ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship to divine, devise all of these artistic things. Um, what an amazing reminder, right, brother, about how all the skills that we've been given are gifts of God. And 
we should use them for his purposes. And in this case, it's a very direct purpose to build uh, all the tabernacle and furnishing. Absolutely. And we see this even today where we have fantastic lay people throughout the synod that can manage money better than you or I could. And they are our treasurers. And we have all of these people that do have this ability and yet God still uses them and has them use their abilities for his kingdom. The idea that, say, the pastor should be the only one that's ever doing anything for the church, perhaps because he's you know, the professional church worker or that he's there most, most of the time or he gets paid, is not only a false idea in terms of the way God has devised things, but it also wears out a pastor. And as you so aptly put, there, there, are, there are things we can't do. You, know, you talked about finances. That is definitely one of my weak points. They would not want me keeping the books uh, because we'd be out of money in no time. So we have all these wonderful servants who serve in their own spare time as a sacrifice to the Lord to help the church be put together from trustees to those who clean the building, to those who keep the money, to the unseen, oftentimes altar guild. There's just so, I mean, I couldn't list all the ways that God puts people together and gives them the gifts needed to make his congregations work and fulfill his mission. Absolutely. And it's really interesting that Moses of the tribe of Levi is the leader of God's people. And God himself says, hey, Moses, this is not going to be your wheelhouse. I'm going to give other people to help you. That was good advice from Jethro when he sees Moses just struggling under the duties of his leadership. And he's yeah. like, you, know, you don't need. Here's how I would say it today, right? You don't have to sacrifice yourself. You know, Christ has already sacrificed himself for the church. You know, he doesn't need your help. Yeah. So we as pastors and even those who volunteer in the church, let me speak to you too. If you're someone who volunteers in the church and you're just, you feel like you're the only one ever volunteering. First of all, no, not going unnoticed. If nothing else, our Lord sees your service. And two, you also don't need to be sacrificing yourself. Encourage others. A step away if you have to. Our service to the Lord should be one that is uh, beneficial to, to everybody, right? Uh, yes, it's self-sacrificial, but you, what I mean is don't kill yourself doing it, right? Absolutely. And this even is seen in Exodus 31. God could have easily said, hey, Moses, your tribe is the tribe that's going to be in the temple all the time. And so they are the ones that are going to build it. But God says, no, Bezael and Aholiab are going to be these people. Unlike, say, Noah, right? <laughs> Poor Noah. He's yeah. given the task and also the monumental task of building an ark. But then it's certainly God helps him along the way, too. Yes. We have, so we have these guys and they are they are given this gift and the, this promise that, that or Moses given this promise that you know, these are the guys that God wants working on it. Now, I assume, right, that it's not just these two. They're not having to do it all on their own, even though they're the two that are mentioned, um, because it does say in 6b, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And so before we get to this big list of all the things that he's commanded them to make, which we've been going over for uh, some weeks now, he, yeah, he, he, they're then to go off and recruit others. These are like the foremen. These are the master craftsmen, so to speak. They still yeah. have to go out and hire workmen. And it's really cool that 
God has actually recorded these names in scripture. Obviously, Moses wrote them down, but these names actually mean something. So in Hebrew, we often have names that mean things. Adam comes from the Hebrew word Adamah, which means earth, and Adam came from the earth. Abraham is the father of nations. That's what his name means. And through Christ, he is the father of nations. Uh, Israel gets his name Israel because he wrestles with God. And that means, or, and Israel itself means wrestles with God. Bezalel or Bezalel means in the shadow or in the protection of God. And so it's really interesting that he's going to be the chief person that is going to be working in the most holy place where the shadow of God is actually going to dwell with his people. And Oholiab means father's tent. And we often talk about God being our father, but the first person to actually do this was our Lord himself when he said, yeah, when you pray this way, pray our father who art in heaven. And then the Pharisees get mad at him for making himself equal with God. So it's really interesting that even foreshadowing in Exodus 31, we hear some of these protection and the names that Jesus himself will have. And what I think is striking about this too, as I'm thinking about what you're saying, is that these are not the names that God gave them. It's not as though God said, all right, your name is now Bezalel because you'll be working where my shadow is. And your name is now a holy of because I want you to remember that, you know, uh, your father in heaven is your ultimate tent. But rather, these are the names I assume their moms gave them. And yes. so God, God knew before the foundation of the world, really, but knew even as they are little babies that these are who he has in mind for putting together his tabernacle. That really, at least for me, broadens my mind about just the way God has things worked out. Not in a fatalistic way, but in an orderly way. And not only in an orderly way, but also in a loving and caring way. So it doesn't matter if you or I or our listeners are having terrible things going on in their lives right now. God still knows you. And God said that your name was written in the book of life at the baptismal font. And so even from the foundation of the world, but also even now, God still knows who you are. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. And that's, and even, you know, we can expand that even further for those who are struggling with illness or anxiety, or worries. God, God has been with you from the beginning. He knit you together in your mother's womb. For congregations who are worried about the future, God has not abandoned you. For those congregations who are calling their next pastor, God already knows who he has in mind to be there. So there's so many different ways in which we can apply this teaching that God is with us and that God knows us by name. And maybe even more importantly, as we've been making clear throughout Exodus, we know our God by name. You know, God gives his name to his people such that they can call upon him in any trouble and need, and of course with prayer and praise too. And so we know the name of our God, or you know, the God, you know, and we don't have to worry if he's not going to answer because as God has demonstrated time and again throughout Exodus, he is a God of power and might. 
Absolutely, and his divine name is actually used throughout Exodus of Yahweh, which means I am. And we see Jesus use that same thing for him to claim himself as God, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and my sheep follow my voice. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the true door. I am the resurrection and the life. And we do get to see that Jesus does mean that he is God and Jesus does know you even as he has ascended into heaven. Well, we then go on in our text to basically a, a repeat of everything that's been going on, right? He says, make all the things that I've commanded you. And lest we forget, here's a nice list of all the things that he had commanded them to make and make them according to his instruction, beginning with the tent of meeting, all the way down to what we talked about yesterday, which was the incense, that fragrant incense that, well, he couldn't even make a perfume of it. It had to be just for the holy place. All of these different things. Um, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful how God has given them this ornate, beautiful, and also meaningful way to worship him, even out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. And it's almost a miracle that they are able to do this because as you just said, they are in the middle of nowhere. So where are they getting the wood for all of this? Where are they getting the gold for the Ark of the Testimony, the mercy seat? Yes, some of that they brought with them from Egypt, but God is still providing for them. And he is a God of order. He is also a God of beauty. So God is saying, hey, I want the place that I am to be worshipped to be beautiful, to look at all of creation and see the beauty of it. And we in the Missouri Synod should also have that same recognition that our churches, our worship places, and even what our pastor wears should be things of beauty. They should not be the secondhand things that maybe we should have gotten rid of a few decades ago. But these should be beautiful things that adequately give worship to the God who created the universe. 100%. I can't agree with you more. But I'll tell you what, folks, you know, Nathaniel, the first name of our guest today, means God has given or God gifted. So far, you've been a great gift to us, but we're going to have to take a break, brother. When we come back from our short break, uh, we will continue studying Exodus 31. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil. With me this morning is the Reverend Nathaniel Brown, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Correll, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran Church in Bellingham, Minnesota, and Trinity Lutheran Church in Odessa, Minnesota. Before we jump back into the text, I just want to remind you, 
If you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer your questions on or off the air, but I always answer. Now, Pastor Brown, before the break, we were talking about this part of how God has set aside people to build his tabernacle and all the furnishings therein. Um, then it gives us this big list of all the things we've been talking about in weeks. Is there anything else you want to bring out before we move on to the second half of our chapter? Not that I can think of other than there are a lot of things in Exodus that God wants to be built, and it can be hard to keep all of them straight. But sometimes writing them down or having an image of what all of these things are is helpful as well. Yeah, it's a nice practice. You know, go online, go to Google, go to this text in particular, and you see now a list of everything that God wanted. And just Google these things and look. Look at the pictures that people have come up with. You know, a lot of these are artists' renderings, but it, it, it helps make this a concrete thing in our mind as a visual people. We can see, wow, look at all that God had them make. And these are things that they had to carry with them as they went through the wilderness, which is also just fascinating to me that they're bringing all this stuff down and setting it all back up in ways that are God-pleasing and that make them understand that God is in their midst. Yeah, and it is something to remember because the exodus has happened and the people of God are about to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they are going to be breaking this down almost every week, every day, and going somewhere new and building it back up. And then the uh, presence of God actually comes down and re-inhabits, re-tabernacles with his people. And as we are approaching Christmas... The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, as John chapter 1, verse 14 says. So we do get to see this really amazing foreshadowing of Christ as well. Well, speaking of a foreshadowing of Christ, the second half of our chapter is about God's establishment of the Sabbath. He did not create this on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. He did not create it here. He created it at creation. So we're going to read verses 12 through 18, which is the rest of our chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. If you keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you, or you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you, everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout all their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, what's interesting is we're just sort of now done, right, brother, with all the stuff that's going on on Sinai. Um, these are the things that he's telling them to, to do in the future. And so I'm, I'm interested here now to understand how can we apply, especially the Sabbath observance, right? The third commandment. How has that changed over history? Because it seems to have changed in terms of the date. 
have we done a mistake by doing that or the Seventh-day Adventists, right? What's going on here? It's hard for people to understand. That's a really good question. And so for us as Christians, yes, the Sabbath day was Saturday. But for all of us as Christians, we know that there is something that is a little bit more important that happened on Sunday. That being, of course, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from death. And so we as Christians look to the early church. We look to Saints Peter and Andrew and the 11 apostles who were sent out by Jesus after uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. And we look at them being faithful Jews that were worshiping God on Saturday. And they were universally in agreement that Jesus rising from the dead is more important than the Sabbath. And so because of that, we have switched our worship to Sunday. It is a God, it is a God-pleasing thing. It is a good thing that we are doing that. Because every Sunday is a mini Easter. So we get to celebrate our Lord's resurrection from the dead each and every time that we go to worship. But there are some people, doctors, nurses, fire people, police, the list goes on and on of people that need to work on Sunday. And it's really sad that that happens, but they should not feel any guilt that they can't worship on Sunday. But almost all of them will have a day off every single week. And that is the day that they should actually use, yes, to rest, but also to go to worship. So if there is somebody who says, hey, I always need to be working on Sunday. Pastor, is there a way we can do a prayer service on my day off? That would warm almost any pastor that I know's heart because it is something that we should do. Because the Sabbath is not just for us to rest. The Sabbath is for us to be in worship. That's what the third commandment is about. That is what the Sabbath is about. So it's not all about just resting. It's all about worshiping our Lord and his son, Jesus Christ himself. So man was not made for the Sabbath, right? But the Sabbath was made for man. And it is for our benefit. It's when God wants to uh, give us rest. And our rest in this day and age, our Sabbath rest is found in Christ. Right? So Christ is the fulfillment of that Sabbath. You know, he comes and he gives us, he gives us rest from our sins. And we, of course, worship him when we're able to gather together with other Christians. And you're right. There are occasions where some people, because of the vocations they serve, necessary vocation, that are unable to maybe be at a traditional service. No, absolutely not. No pastor out there is going to, uh, be have a problem with wanting to give you at the very least the sacraments whenever you desire it now with that said though we look at it in context here and we see that god is extremely serious about it for those who break this commandment there is a penalty and that penalty is that they shall be cut off from their people or more specifically they shall be put to death now that seems that god is very serious about people keeping the sabbath it's, it's one of those things where it's like, this is so important for you and so beneficial for you, and you need it so badly that if you don't do it, the punishment is death. Uh, that's, that's hard, for, I think, for people to get their minds around today. It absolutely is. And I think part of that is for us as Americans, we work and we work and we work and 
we work harder than most other generations did. You look at the farmers who went before you and they said, oh yeah, we need to do a bunch of work, but they were willing to take the time off and they were willing to say, the sun's down, I'm going to spend time with my family. And we as Americans living in the 21st century have become addicted to our work. And so for many people, they say, oh, the day off that I have, that is the only day that I can get any rest. It's the only day I can sleep in. And yes, we absolutely do need to rest from our labors. But the Sabbath is more than just rest. It is, you will be worshiping God. And so what God is really saying here is, hey, if you are unwilling to spend a day of worship to me as the creator of the universe, then you have another God. And because of that, you should be put to death. And you will see tomorrow with the golden calf incident that God is absolutely serious about this, but he still provides a way of mercy for people who do break it. In Romans, Paul talks about how Christians have been freed from the law of Moses because they are under Christ. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. In the same book, 14, one a person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. He should be convinced in their mind. Um, Galatians, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the interesting thing, when we talk about the laws of the Old Testament, you'll hear us speak of the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. There are lots of civil laws that refer to how people should govern themselves without you know, a king or any other government under their theocracy, right, living under God. And those things really don't apply to us because in the time since those laws were given, God has established other forms of government. Of course, those governments are all are bound together by the natural law. Ten Commandments, which are a summary of that. But even the Ten Commandments contain ceremonial laws and moral laws. And this is an interesting commandment, the Third Commandment, because it contains elements of both. On the ceremonial side, we see that there is the ceremony of, of on the seventh day, keeping your Sabbath rest. Right? Sabbath means rest, doesn't mean Saturday. Uh, when Christ came, we're freed from the law of Moses, so the ceremonial laws no longer apply. They're fulfilled by Christ, but the moral laws still apply. Well, what is the moral law behind the third commandment of keeping the Sabbath? It is, as you have said so aptly, brother, to make time to worship God, receive his gifts, to enjoy your rest in Christ. So that Sabbath then, therefore, is kept forever. Right, Because it is kept forever, as God commands here, because it is fulfilled forever in Jesus. And we don't put people to death if they don't keep the Sabbath, because that is a part of this sort of civil ceremonial law, which has been fulfilled in Christ. Now, at least that's how I try to explain it to people when we have this cognitive disconnect between how are we keeping this commandment? The commandment seemingly has changed over the years. Maybe, you know, what do you think about that thinking? Am I off base or maybe you have a better way to explain it? No, you're completely right. And the way I would expand on that actually is the ceremonial law was everyone wanting to look forward in time to Jesus. And so Jesus absolutely kept the whole law perfectly. 
We know this throughout the scriptures. But the ceremonial law was for God's people to be set apart from the world around them. And so we as Christians are under the moral law. We also have Christ fulfilled that or that part of the law being the moral law. But Christ himself says, hey, these are still good things for you to do. So for us, we are we hold ourselves under the moral law. We don't keep the punishments of the civil law because we aren't the people of God wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. So we do still have this ceremonial law. And Martin Luther actually said it best on page 321 of the Lutheran service book in the small catechism under the third commandment. The third commandment, obviously, is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And Luther himself asks, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Martin Luther was not talking about what the uh, Sabbath should be or how you need to take a day of rest. Instead, he actually says, this is a day for you to worship God. And so, yes, we are absolutely free to worship God whenever we have the availability to do so. But if we say during the summer you have a vacation and you don't go to church one week, you aren't going to be blamed by your pastor and your pastor is not going to advocate for you being put to death because you didn't worship God one week. Fair enough, right? And of course, your pastor might want you to bring a bulletin from whatever church you went to. I've heard that before. But the idea here is that, you know, being faithful to the Lord is about receiving his gifts, not doing things to try to earn God's favor. And so the Christian will want to gather among other people. The Christian will want to be in worship. The Christian will want to receive God's gifts when they are offered. And when they cannot receive them for whatever reason, then they lament that. You know, no reason to feel guilty so much as just to understand that that's something you're missing out on and you want to be uh, where God is among his people. And so I think that's also why we see here the language of being cut off from among your people. Right? Whoever does any work on it, and this is verse 14 again, whoever does any work on it, but that soul shall be cut off from among his people. The idea here is that if you're so focused on doing work on the day when God wants to give you his gifts and gather you together in their context, it would have been about resting. Um, and, and then of course in, as, as the synagogue worship became the, the norm, it would be about hearing God's word, but by doing so, you're really cutting yourself off from your people. This is, this is a passive word. It doesn't necessarily say that God will cut you off from among your people. It says that soul will be cut off or shall be cut off among his people. I mean, yes, you have the death penalty on the table, but probably worse is that you are separating yourself from the people of God as he gathers you together. Or in this case, as he's gifted you with rest. That's a really good point. And it's something that we are approaching Christmas when we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also spend time with family. And I don't know about you, but if I went home to my parents for the holiday and there were presents under the Christmas tree and I said, yeah, those presents are really nice, but I don't want them. 
I would kind of be putting a sour mood on everyone else where we as Christians should accept and willingly receive these gifts with a joy, not just coming to worship in person, but as you said, receiving the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are gifts of God, and we should want to receive them as we, as little kids receive gifts on Christmas. And it is something that we do see where, yes, you can lament not showing up. But when you go back to church, most of the time you will feel immense joy. And Pastor Boo, I don't know if you are the same as me, but if I am going through a really busy week as a pastor and I start feeling that delay of and that kind of malaise and the apathy going on, I start asking myself, hey, when was the last time I read the Bible? And more times than not, if I'm not in the word each and every day, I'm going to start feel down and I'm going to start feel run down and burned out. And God has given his gift in the word itself that we are to daily be in that word and to be refreshed by that word. Well, and that's what's so important. I often also attribute a lot of pastors do to not even just gifts, though, but just simple eating, right? You have to eat to be healthy, to, to have energy, to be able to, to live your life. And we have to, you know, follow God's will, not just because we are afraid of the penalty of death, right? That's been taken off the table for those who have faith in Christ. Now it's because we want to we'll be with our Father. We want to be nourished. We want to um, gather around. And if you're out there, folks, if you're listening and you maybe feel convicted, maybe you're like, you know, I just don't like going to church. And, and I don't, I don't feel like a kid at Christmas time to get the sacrament. And now you're worried for some reason about your faith. Well, I don't want you to worry. Don't burden your hearts, but do search your heart, right? Search and see what is in your life that perhaps you have made more important than being where God wants you to give you his gifts. Um, maybe there are relationship issues. Maybe you're just mad at your pastor. <laughs> you know, if that is the case, work it out with him um, or go somewhere else. But be where God wants to give you his gifts because it's so important. And all of this is done in the context of the Ten Commandments, right? This is all up on Sinai when he's speaking these things. You know, timeline-wise, you know, I've always understood these passages that we've been covering over the past few weeks all happening on Sinai. And then the tabernacle and all these things get put into practice later uh, after the golden calf. Now, I had a very, a very uh, intelligent, smart pastor say, no, some of this isn't the timeline that I think it is. That's fine. Um, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is all of this is in the context of God passing down his law to his people. And while it has these penalties involved, which make us think, you know, like it's such a, a burden to keep and we have to keep it out of fear. I think the reality here is that God knows we need structure, need the guidance to be able to serve him and live lives which are the best we can this side of Christ's return. Absolutely. And this order is not just given on Sinai. It is helpful for us to remember that because as verse 17 says, the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And for our listeners who might have something going on each and every Sunday that they can't be in worship, 
you still have a day off. And yes, we as Americans should absolutely say, yes, your day off, if you only get one a week, you should absolutely rest because that is a good and God-pleasing thing. But the Sabbath was not made just for us to rest. The Sabbath was not made for us to say, oh, we are doing no work. Because as our Lord himself says, if one of you has an ox or donkey or your son that falls into a well, you're going to do work to get him out. So we should not be burdened and say, oh, I didn't get my day off. I didn't get to rest. There are days that sometimes you need to work. Pastors need to work on Sundays. Pastors need to work on Christmas. They need to work on Easter. But we are still in God's word. And even for all of us, be in the word. That's the important thing. Find your rest in the one who gives you the rest and who established the Sabbath himself as an example for us to follow based on the first week of creation. It seems like forever ago when we were talking about the plagues of Egypt, but in Exodus eight nineteen, the magicians had finally given up and said, this is the finger of God. But of course, Pharaoh's heart was still hard. We see the finger of God again here at the, in the very last verse of our chapter. You know, he gave and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony the tablets of stone written in the finger of God. Now, these tablets are the Decalogue, the, what we call the Ten Commandments. Um, what's the significance of calling it two tablets? I mean, I guess there were two literal tablets. So we've also kind of maybe made that into something else. And then the finger of God, that's also an interesting turn of phrase. What do you think, Brad? Yes, it is. So the two tablets, absolutely. We had two stone tablets that were brought down from Sinai. And for most of our listeners, they probably saw the movie, The Ten Commandments. And that is kind of where we get our image of the two tablets. But for us as Lutherans, we actually have taken this a different way where the first tablet is not the first five commandments, the second tablet is the second five commandments, but the first tablet is the first three commandments. All three of these first commandments do talk about our relationship with God. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. God alone is our only God that we should worship. The second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We should actually hold God's name sacred and use it to pray to him, but not use it in a condemning way or the way of the world. And then the third commandment, as we've been talking, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And this is the first tablet or the first table of the law. Again, talking about our relationship with God and our Heavenly Father. And then the final six or the final nine, uh, final seven commandments, excuse me, the final seven commandments all talk about our relationship with one another here on earth, beginning with honoring your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not steal and you shall not covet. So all of these talk about our relationship with one another here on earth. So these are the two tablets that we talk about as Lutherans. The first table being our relationship with God. The second tablet being the relationship that we have with one another. And then Pastor Boo actually asked about the finger of God. 
and we can actually imagine this in our minds. God is saying, these are so important that I'm going to write them for all of God's people. I'm going to actually etch my finger into stone. And for all of us, we often say, yeah, stone is way harder than our fingers. If we tried to do that, then we might not actually be able to do that. And blood might be shed because we are etching our fingers against a stone. And our Lord does indeed, all the scriptures talk about Jesus. And this finger of God, we can say, oh wait, when did God actually shed his blood to keep the law? Oh, that happened at the cross. So this finger of God, yes, it is a metaphor, but it is also something that we take quite literally as our Lord actually bled and died keeping the law on our behalf. Definitely a great point to end on, brother. But before we go, we have like maybe one minute left. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before? Sure. So this whole uh, chapter of scripture, yes, it does have some really technical things. And we don't have the tabernacle. We don't have the Sabbath the same way that they that the Israelites did. But we as Christians still say, yep, there are things in this chapter that we can use. God wants our worship to be orderly. God wants our worship spaces to be beautiful. God wants us to keep the Sabbath by going to him in prayer, being in his word, receiving his gifts of his son's body and blood, which were given for us on the cross. So as we can wrap up Exodus 31, that is a reminder for all of us that God still wants these things for us, even though the way that they go about might be different. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Nathaniel Brown, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Corel, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran Church in Bellingham, Minnesota, and Trinity Lutheran Church in Odessa, Minnesota. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you for having me and God's blessings to all of you folks thank you too for joining us come back tomorrow as we move into the next chapter and that sad event of god's people making the golden calf how quickly they forgot their lord but do we still have our own golden calves we worship today instead of god tomorrow's episode will answer those questions but also will be the very last episode before kfuo's 12 days of christmas then we'll return on january 9th and so you can join us then. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.